0: Lives with a song so you can sing along with my special guest star two. two You like to sing and dance and this podcast by chance explores musicals for you Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Life's But a Song, a podcast that likes to live in the land of musicals. I'm your host, John, and with me today is a special guest who we did it. I don't know how many episodes you've been on. It's Matt Koplik, everyone. Hi. And we're here to talk about the topic that Matt has impatiently been waiting to actually talk about, and that is carousel. But we're. Well, here to- for- Wait, what? I was going to say, we're here to do a very specific one. It's the slime tutorial, if you will. Sure. Of the 1994 production.
1: Yeah, we're not talking about the 1950s movie. Not not yet, anyway. Which, which, yeah, it's garbage. And we're not talking about the Lincoln Center concert that Kelly O'Hara did that was broadcast. And we're not talking about the Justin Peck one that you adamantly told me not to watch. (laughs) Yeah. I think that is the proper way to describe how vehemently opposed I was to you watching it. This is this, we are watching the 1994 production that was at Lincoln center theater that launched Audra McDonald's Broadway career.
0: Uh, uh, Looking her up, this is her first Broadway credit
1: and she's like, it's her second Broadway credit. It's her first lead and her first original production because she was a replacement in the secret garden before it closed.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Listen, I
1: know so much about that woman.
0: So this carousel, well, carousel, the book is by Oscar Hammerstein II, based off the play... Lillium. Thank you. Lillium.
1: By by Frederick Molnar.
0: By Frederick Molnar, and then it was adapted by Benjamin F. Glazer. Music by Richard Rogers. Lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II. This production is directed by Nicholas Hinter. Heitner. Heitner. Heitner you yeah. heighten damn it and well there is no imdb but according to the youtube description that's written by a very enthusiastic person and it's almost in all caps the legendary 1994 lct production aka the only one worth watching and yes that is a fact backed by science so yes
1: Uh, I don't know who that person was. I don't know who that person is, but
0: God bless them for putting the slime tutorial
1: because I can finally see it. (laughs) Yep. And not to boast this person's cred too much, but if you look at the date, this is, I'm almost certain, the first Broadway slime tutorial to compile multiple videos together to create something close to a cinematic like viewing of a broadway production after this (laughs) other slime tutorials started doing the same thing you can see one of the original sunset boulevard of natasha pierre in the great comet where it's different unauthorized videos in addition to professionally filmed uh press footage and yeah so with the okay you are a scholar of carousel no
0: i'm not we're not hiding that so and you've Talked about it at length on your podcast, too.
1: I want to also say congrats to John. You got me to do an episode on this production of Carousel before I got to do it on my podcast. So you you usurped me, sir. You're welcome, everyone. We get to hear all of his thoughts on this
0: production. But um, what were the professional shots from? Because there is no actual... There probably is a recording that's somewhere yeah, in like there the depth- is a
1: yeah there's a professional recording at Lincoln Center Library. It's for anyone who's ever been to the library knows that those videos are not incredible. <laughs> you do not watch them to go, oh my god, you see every detail and like the the camera angles. It's usually two maybe three cameras, and it's like a wide shot and a close up, and the purpose is to document as much of the staging and design as possible uh and they do a relatively good job so the link so the lincoln center library recording of that of this carousel is good they capture most of the action they don't really do a good job of capturing the lighting so the professional footage you see in this slime tutorial is b-roll footage that was used for uh commercials and for tv reviews because there used to be a time Uh... tv reviews abc nbc um if you go on aurora spider woman he has I mean he has all the B-roll from this as well, in addition to his own bootlegs of of the show and other shows, but you can see he posts like the TV reviews for Carrie the musical when that opened. And so when they're telling their reviews, there's like B-roll footage playing. Same thing with like the waiting in the wings videos. He he uses a lot of the B-roll footage that these shows uh shoot. So that's what the professional footage is from this carousel.
0: So is there with your knowledge and research and the dissertation paper that you basically wrote on carousel um, in, head. in your head I, I, is there a reason why there isn't a recording of this one that was made for the public
1: that just was not done very often um you know this came out in 1994 at this point we had pippin really we had Pipp- well we had pippin sweeney todd into the woods and sunday in the park with george and they were all for tv uh pbs i believe and showtime and it's not it was it just was not done uh and this was a production that was at lincoln center theater which is a non-for-profit lincoln center theater hadn't started regularly broadcasting their shows yet via pbs they weren't really doing live from lincoln center yet Uh... They, they had done their production of house of blue leaves, but that was after it transferred from the Beaumont to another Broadway theater again, towards the end of the run. Uh, I mean, in retrospect, they absolutely should have, but you know, you don't know what you don't know until you realize you didn't know it.
0: How did you, I mean, like, how would they not know when Audra opens her voice and it's like, Oh my God, angels are singing right now.
1: Well, (laughs) it's interesting, John, this production was actually kind of controversial at the time. Uh, we we talked about this a little bit in the King and I episodes, okay. but let me take us all back a second, because we'll talk about the writing, we'll talk about this production, we'll talk about sort of a little bit the origins of the show and the angles that Hammerstein did when adapting it, because Lilium is a weird play, and you don't yes. realize just how good of an adaptation Carousel is until you read Lilium and realize just how much of the good stuff Hammerstein kept and how much of the weird, bad stuff he got rid of and made the story make a fuck lot more sense. Um, and also more palatable because whereas Lilium is sort of about like, oh, if you're damaged, you're always going to be damaged and you're always going to mess up and cause pain and you should be punished forever. And Hammerstein's like, no, you can find redemption if you ask for help. And, but you also have to acknowledge that you've done wrong before you ask for forgiveness. It's similar to the movie Promising Young Woman, which I don't know if you yes. still see. Yeah. yeah, But like, that's the whole thing with Carrie Mulligan, Every time she confronts people with their shittiness, she's there. And everyone's like, you you have to understand. You got to forgive me. You got to forgive me. And she's like, well, you got to admit you did wrong first. And no one's willing to, except for Alphalene. Right. So that's of right, The whole purpose of the carousel. But at the time that this production... So this production originated at the Royal National Theatre in 1992, which is in England. And that came about because the artistic director of the National at the time, Richard Ayer, I think is his name, he felt that musicals had just as much dramatic potency as Shakespeare or Ibsen or Will- or Tennessee Williams. And he wanted to give them their proper due. So the National started doing more musicals, which was very controversial in London. Similar to like when the Royal Shakespeare Company made Blame Miz, everyone's like, Oh, they used to do Macbeth and Oswald and Innswell. Now they're doing a musical. Uh-huh. So, the National doing musicals. Everyone's like, Oh, these are cash grabs. And uh Heitner was asked to do a musical and he sort of was looking through different scripts and he came upon Carousel and he had remembered watching the movie and thinking it was pretty treacly and shitty the and 51 uh, 1951 the, movie. the 1950 I think it's 5556 or wait, with, whatever the the one that we are going to watch eventually and and the, whole, <laughs> the reason we're watching we're talking about this one is cuz I told you in order for you to understand how awful the 50s movie is you need to know what the show can be when done by people who are good at what they do um I mean, Audra Ann was uh, fantastic. That's his one positive. (laughs) But don't worry, I'm going to turn you around. Uh, Oh, no, no. I really... The
0: the thing, though, before you keep going, I just want to say... I did like the show. It's just that because it's a slime tutorial, it was a little difficult for me to understand what was going on because I couldn't sure. really hear. And ne- <laughs> and these days now I use subtitles for everything.
1: Yeah. And, and the two unauthorized videos are from the 90s. So like, it's not the clearest of audio. Sometimes it's not always the clearest of visuals. Uh, I should have found an online script for you to go along with because they don't. Oh, they, I read oh, I I just read the
0: synopsis okay. uh, on Wikipedia and that helped me yeah. enough fill in synopsis. blanks. Well
1: there's there's a lot of de- there are a lot of details in the script that are worth noting, but we can talk about later. Because th- that this production pretty much adheres to the original script. I think they maybe cut one line and they alter one other line and then they cut one song in act two, which we'll get to. But um and I'm usually not the biggest fan of like making huge changes in revi- revivals. I'm like, if you want to change the show so much don't do the show uh? because then like, why are you doing it? But, but like, it sounds like they did minimal changes. Yeah. The and revival. the changes, the changes they did were more about making the show land for a nineties audience. And not and instead of like being like, Oh, we want to cut anything that's offensive. It's like, no, no, no. The style of how we perform musical theater has changed. So, you know, we things that scene changes that used to take two minutes in the 1940s where you have to bring down a curtain and whatnot We can do in 20 seconds now. So a lot of things used to be written in musicals in the 30s, 40s, and 50s to cover a scene change. And at their best, they were scenes or songs that propelled the plot. So like, for example, in the original production of Carousel, the whole thing, the whole Carousel Waltz was a unit set that was just like a display, a tableau of the carnival. And then a scrim came down and then they did the whole Mr. Snow bench scene in front of the scrim while they changed out that set and made the next set, which was Nettie's Spa and Parlor. But the brilliance of Rodgers and Hammerstein is they were like, oh, we can just do this whole thing on one set in front of a scrim for the next 30 minutes while we change everything out and we don't have to like stop the action. But they did. They wrote one song in act two called The Highest Judge of All. That does nothing. It stops the show dead in its tracks. It's a regurgitation of what Billy has already said in dialogue for a three-minute song. And when the <laughs> cut was, du- was figuring out how he was going to direct the show, and he was looking through the script, he asked Mary Rogers, Richard Rogers' his daughter, he's like, I'm. He's like, listen, I can pretty much find a way into all of this show. I don't have a way into this song. Can you give me some insight into what your father and Oscar were thinking when they wrote it, and she's like, "It was to cover a scene change." And he's like, "Oh, well, we can make that scene change happen in fifteen seconds now. We can have it happen during dialogue. Can I cut the song?" And she's like, "Yeah, cut the song. It's stupid." And he's like, "Great." And everything <laughs> else, and everything else was was hunky dory. But so at, by the early '90s, Rogers and Hammerstein were considered passe because. The all we really had to go off of were the movie versions of their musicals, and with the exception of Sound of Music and about sixty five percent of King and I, those movies are not very good. uh And even King and I and Sound of Music, good as they are, are very hunky dory, kind of sweet. Like sound, the yes. fact that Sound of Music is as brilliant of a movie as it is, considering how treacly it is, is a miracle, and I could never explain it to you. It's something that's it's not that's not right. science. That might be Dame Julie Andrews that uh, uh, doing- And and, doing- and it's Austria, and it's Charmaine yeah. and Chris Plummer being so fuckable. It's like, it's crazy. I couldn't explain to you. Um, But so every- everyone was like, oh, Oscar Hammerstein. Like, whatever. June is busting out all over. What the fuck ever. And revivals on Broadway at this point were mostly nostalgia pieces. So either it was like a zany- um, you know, candy color throwback or it was a recreation of what it had been before. So when in the 80s, we had the Bob Fosse Sweet Charity being recreated. Jerome Robbins' West Side Story was being recreated. Uh, Hal Prince's Cabaret was being recreated. And then we had like Patty LuPone and Anything Goes and Kevin Kline doing Pirates of Penzance and Nathan Lane and Faith Prince doing Guys and Dolls, which were lovely, but like, oh, we're not delving deep into this. These are comedies. And like, that's the golden age is just about having a good time. And when Nick Heitner was reading the script for Carousel, he's like, oh, fuck. This is, was like, this is very complex shit. This, he's, he realized Carousel was about sex and violence. And he realized if you're gonna do Carousel, you have to treat it like Tennessee Williams. You are doing Streetcar Named Desire. It is about working class people who are thinking with their loins and their hearts, never their heads, and everything blows up in their pretty little faces. Uh,
0: the, the thing, though, for me with, uh, I don't know if it's this production or if it's just Carousel in all. I just don't know the time lapse because, like, in the first like twenty minutes, that's when Billy and Julie uh, meet, and then all of a sudden, the next scene, they're married. And I was
1: just like, wait a second, did I miss a? Yeah, they yeah. That's that's where it would help to have some uh, have the script next to you because they do say it. They don't. You know, like how in town they're like not too much exposition. Right. Parasol's really good about leaking out the exposition over a couple of scenes, so it's like it flashes forward three months after. If I loved you, and we go into June is busting out all over. It's been about three months.
0: Yeah, that that's, that's, that that was one of the things that, I, like I said, the the Wikipedia plot summary helped me answer some questions because of yeah. of a sudden I'm I'm just like wait you
1: are yeah Mrs.
0: Julie's getting beaten by Billy and they're married? What is what is happening?
1: Mrs. Mullen says something along the lines of, like, you've been married three months and you're miserable. Something like that. Um, And, yeah. But so, Heitner and his designer, Bob Crowley, uh, do this at the National That's where it, it, the design is incredible. It's a legendary design. They do it at the National. It explodes it's like this huge cultural moment in london uh they keep extending it until as far as they can go and then they transfer to the west end it wins a whole bunch of oliviers and broadway was like demanding it because this is also this is the early 90s there was really no internet yet and frank rich of the times who is notoriously difficult to please was like this is the best revival i've ever seen and everything in america is not ranking up to it and there like no one had photos to go off of there were no videos to go off of uh they had they eventually did a cast recording like a year later with the west end cast and so everyone's like what the fuck is this carousel that he keeps talking about like we we want it and the problem was like transferring it was you know it's such a big production but it's also about intimacy so they had a hard time finding the right theater and then they eventually got to lincoln center and so when it opened at lincoln center the reviews were equally ecstatic there were two issues that some critics had and some audiences had. One was that this was a production that really focused on the acting. They were still, you know, music was important. It's a 27-piece orchestra and Audra and McDonald, But Michael Hayden was a Juilliard dramatic actor who could sing but was not a singer. It was about how he expressed emotion through, his, through song and not about, like, a booming baritone. And we had had the last, God, like, 50 years at that point of Billy's like John Raitt and Gordon McRae who were like my boy Bill, ba-da-da, and we've kind of reverted back to that. So people, there were people who are not pleased with that attitude of Michael Hayden's casting. I think those people are basic and stupid. And then the other thing was that this was the first production of a golden age musical to do colorblind casting, which we now would call color conscious casting because the truth is that Nick Heitner, he came from the opera world and the Shakespearean world. And he was like, First he was like, I want whoever's right for the role to get the role. But he also said, and this is where it's actually color-conscious casting, he said, Carousel is a fable. And in Act 2, we eventually go into the great beyond, flash forward 16 years, and come back with Billy as a ghost. That requires some suspension of disbelief. We can't have a documentary on stage. So in order for the audience to have a little bit of a suspension of disbelief, we are going to present to them an 1880s New England that's not totally accurate. This is a ethnically diverse company which would never actually happen and it allows the audience to understand that we are telling a fable and then also having a design that is very impressionistic and abstract in its own way so we talked about this i think in the sound of music episode but the whole what makes what sure. makes a good musical successful is the emotions are real the circumstances are real but the setting is not Right, like how we how it's presented is not. It is heightened, and so they presented this carousel in a very heightened way, theatrically and you no know, presentationally speaking. But they made sure that everything about who was on stage was very viscerally real, and that's what made it so potent. But there were people who were super against the ethnically diverse casting. There were people who kept making jokes that Audra was playing Carrie piperidge and singing about Mister Snow, and like and there's a there's even a quote in the Times review. That says, her and Mr. Snow's children look like a Benetton ad.
0: <gasps> what? Oh my yep. god.
1: And to, in, not in defense of the Times. They, the def, Times had no issue with the diverse casting. They were like, Audra McDonald is the real find of the production. But like they make cracks like that. And John Simon, who was the most racist, anti-Semitic, misogynistic asshole, really could not get on board with the racially diverse casting, called Audra militantly charmless. Which is which was his coded way of saying like she's a Black Panther It's like go fuck yourself, dude. She when was, he died, no one mourned. She was the show, like that's the, and that's the thing is like Audra is the best thing about a production where there are nine thousand amazing things. Someone described yes. it to me because someone was like, I was I was talking. I've done so much research on the show. I've been obsessed with it for twelve, thirteen years now, and I've asked friends of mine who were you know in the theater world and part of the press at the time that the survival came out and they all you know everyone when i bring it up to them like oh yeah that was actually one of the best things i've ever seen sometimes i forget like how incredible that was and when we talk about the audra of it all it's so easy to not realize how incredible she was at the time because we've seen her win six Tonys since but well this one was her first one it was her first one. And everyone goes, Well, what made her so special in this? It's like, well, first of all, no one had ever seen her before. So imagine seeing Audra for the very first time with absolutely no warning. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is Carrie Pippridge. And you'll see it when we watch the fucking 50s movie. And if you ever decide to watch the Justin Peck shitty revival with Lindsay Mendez, people used to play Carrie Pippridge like a dum dum. Like she like a very stereotypical 1940s, like,
0: oh my, Mr. Snow,
1: and Audra played her like a person. Her carry was smart. She was resilient. She was very... Um, uh... She was like
0: like a really... I, I mean, I know the character seemed like it was... She's the friend and everything. But, like, huh. it it was grounded in reality. Like, this, this whole thing was, like, grounded in reality. I mean, obviously, the ending... When it's a, it's very it's really a tragic. <laughs> when the ending, when it's a dream sequence, oh, fantasy happenings. Yeah. It's not,
1: a, it's not a dream sequence. People call it a dream ballet, but it's not happening in a dream. It's happening in real life. Carrie is the comedic relief, and Audra is funny in this, but she's not getting jokes at the expense of reality or humanity she is playing her carry like a person and mm-hmm. all of the humor comes from that. So she has line deliveries that are fucking hilarious, but they come from a very real place. For example, after she does the Mr. Snow reprise in, in the kitchen and she's on the table with, uh, on her back and he shows up and mortifies her. And, um, She has two lines that are so great. After First of all, this production also goes against the trend where, you know, she's talking up a big game about Mr. Snow. He's so manly. I love him so much. He's a fisherman. And then it's like tiny little Eddie Corbett, who is bald. He's got this pingy little tenor voice. He's like five foot six. And he's sweet. And he's so talented. Well, Snow is not that sweet. But, like, you know, he's not your The actor is (laughs) sweet. (laughs) The actor is sweet. The character is not. Um, And- so it's it a first of all is like a fun sort of uh turnaround that Carrie's been talking up Mr. Snow in a way that he really isn't, but to her he kind of is. And then when he shows up, he goes, Are you surprised? She goes, Surprised, I'm mortified. And she turns to Julie and goes, Well, this is him.
0: But also in that same scene, she's just like, he is hot, right? Like she I do anything like I said he was. Yeah.
1: It's, it's so good. And the it, she's just a treasure. She like, is. She like, has another one like, where Oh, looks like we'll have good weather for the clan bake. And Julie says, yeah, not a cloud in the sky. And Enoch looks out the window, comes back in and goes, you're right. And there's a beat and Audra goes, you don't say much. But what he says is awful pithy. She's so, it's, I, I, I
0: really like um, this production. I have to say, I am upset that like I was mm, six at the time and I didn't even see it. Cause like the set design, I have to say, was just is beautiful. There's moments where it was like simple, like they're on like w- the. I guess the bench scene is them on
1: the mound. Yeah. So the be- so the bench scene, you know, yeah. it's called the bench scene because.
0: So what's really funny is you watch the <laughs> I watched the video, the slide yeah. tutorial, and then it went into another video about how uh, carousel changed the bench scene, which is yeah. when the leads
1: fall in love and it's usually on a bench. It's, called, it's yeah. That's why it's called the bench scene is they, the whole thing takes place on a bench, which is from Lillium. And Heitner was like, well, I would like some physicality here. You know, I want a little bit of danger. And I guess where he grew up in England, because I think he didn't grow, he didn't grow up in the city. I think he grew up sort of in a suburb or whatever. There were hills where teenagers would go to hook up and so they kind mm. of lean into that so the whole thing takes place on a hill right outside of a church by the water right outside of the carnival
0: like and then you like you get to um the town later on where there's like it's a set like there's sets and yeah. everything but like it seemed simple and and like yeah. y- you're folk and cinematic where you're just focusing in on this I-, I think around this time also on broadway they were trying to like fill the stage with
1: yeah well, so it's, it's the Beaumont and you've been to the Beaumont theater right I have not
0: actually the la-
1: yeah it's the largest stage on Broadway because I, at this point I don't know what I have or have not said on your podcast because again congratulations been on so many times <laughs> <But> <laughs> the Vivian Beaumont theater at Lincoln Center was supposed to be our equivalent to a national theater that was like its intention And plays were going to be done there in rep. So like the thrust area was going to be like the actual stage stage and everything behind it was backstage and was going to hold like all these sets that they would just swap in and out. So they would do like little foxes on a Tuesday, Macbeth on a Wednesday, Hamlet on a Thursday, rinse and repeat. And then like the next season, blah, 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 which is something they actually do at the national theater in London. A lot is like, there are, there will be stages that are showing two shows in rep for like, six months so for example this carousel when it was at the national even though it only ran i think like 110 performances it actually ran for about six to seven months uh right because it was sharing a theater with another show but so when that didn't work out then uh for like all of the 70s and early 80s it was like, well, how the fuck do we use this stage? We've got this like football field and then this thrust and the acoustics are weird and like who knows what to do with it. And this was the first production at the Beaumont that really took advantage of all of the Vivian Beaumont stage. Most shows until then really just kind of prioritized the thrust and maybe used a little bit behind that. So all the major playing, uh, playing work for this carousel happens on the thrust, but they use a lot of the other stuff to, as you said, like to fill it up, to show the expansiveness of the universe and the and the world that they're in. And it was, it's just really well done. They use force perspectives. It is a relatively simple set design because it is a lot of backdrops and like one piece comes on, but it's how it all comes together that makes it just so beautiful. Like the bench scene, it's just that hill and a drop, but the way that everything comes together is gorgeous.
0: I have to say though, yes. I started watching this. I was- I was having a salad. Um, And so we're right in
1: front of my salad, right in front of my salad.
0: Well, we're eating, we're eating. And then we get to, they completed the carousel. And my jaw, like I I had the fork to my mouth, my jaw dropped Mm
1: -hmm. because it's gorgeous and so unexpected. So, okay, let's set this. Okay, so what you're referring to is the carousel vaults, the opening, yes? The opening, yes. yes. So, John, Truly, I don't know how long we're going to go. We both have things to do today. Yeah, uh, (laughs) but I I figured I'd let you speak your truth. And I appreciate. appreciate. And I don't want to give away too much of the farm because eventually I will be covering this show and this production specifically on my podcast at some point. I don't know when, but I do really want to kind of get people to understand why this production is so fucking incredible and how it's so changed the game for revivals forever. Because people don't really understand that. Like, the color conscious casting, huge. The acting forward in a Golden Age musical, huge. Like, treating the text like an actual script and not just play acting, huge. Which is something that has percolated through revival since then. There became a trend later on in the 90s of, like, doing Golden Age musicals in a quote-unquote dark way. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not what this production did. This production looked at the text and said, oh, shit, this show is really dark. It's got a suicide. It's got domestic violence. It's got um, you know sex and a a failed robbery, and people are depressed and toxic. So they recognize the darkness in the script and brought that out. And then people are like, "Oh, okay." So we now do a dark sound of music where Marie is bipolar. It's like, no, 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 no.
0: I didn't. uh, You know, I'm learning. I'm learning a lot as you go because you're You're so excited to talk about this, but I I didn't pick up on any of that because me watching it, it with modern eyes and everything like i didn't understand the significance of the people of color in the cast i didn't yeah. understand the like i thought this was how the show was always presented
1: like it it the material is dark as fuck well like it, it dark in the sense that you know it really is not afraid to delve into the messiness of human action yes, yes. and because it is not trying to placate the audience and treat bad acting characters purely as villains it can make certain modern younger people look at it and go oh it's condoning this behavior i'm like no 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 no! it's trying to delve into the psyche of why people hurt people and why these and why things like this happen all the time and it is it's very close to home to me in general but especially right now uh I don't know what it is about the timing with you, John. The last time I was on the podcast, I was going through something. I'm going through it again. The thing that I was going through last time has continued to now. And it's got, and it is now in a worse way where we are out of it, but it hurts further. So believe me, when I talk about the themes of this show and the relationship between Billy and Julie, we're going to get into it, but in a lighter sense, let me, let's just start with the carousel vaults and use this as a template of how this revival is so incredible. So let I brought it up a little bit, but um, let me give you, let me give your listeners and you a little okay. more context of how the Carousel Waltz until 1994 was done. So, okay, 1992 in London, 1994 in America, but until this moment, usually what would happen is the lights would go down and you would hear do 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 like all in the darkness, and then as the theme picked up, that da 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 da, and they go ah da 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 would come up and you would see a full blown tableau of a carnival. Carousel on one side of the stage, strongman on another, uh, cotton candy, like, you know, and a whole thing is pantomimed, no dialogue, no sound, it's just the music. Sort of like um the way that the uh, the way Lincoln Center does their nutcracker with the kids, where it's all just like Portabra and yeah. like walking around, very that. And in it, you know, you watch sort of the whole carnival happen and you watch Billy bark for the carousel, you see him lock eyes with Julie from across the carnival, and by the end of the number, she goes on the car uh, on the carousel he puts her on it and you watch them sort of flirt with each other as carrie watches and mr mullen watches and that's it that's like the whole plot of the carousel waltz usually and then we go into carrie and julie running on stage and like oh she's chasing us and whatever this revival you hear those long drawl chords and the first thing you see is a giant clock immediately everyone's like i'm sorry what That's not a carnival. And the curtain rises. And where are we but at the mill where Julie and Carrie work, which is fucking brilliant choice number one, because it is taking the music we all know and love and putting it in a different location that is text-based. They are not making up a situation that Julie and Carrie never refer to they talk about how they work at a mill they talk carrie says in you're a queer one julie jordan when we work you always stare lazily at the roof you're always distracted and that happens we've watched that happen with julie she gets distracted and stops working by watching them in their workstation watching sort of what julie and carrie do day to day we have context for where julie is coming from when she gives up her job when she gets fired when she willingly doesn't go back to the mill to stay with billy because we go from the mill and we leave the mill you know that when the music finally gets to the music we know the carousel waltz theme that the clock strikes six the girls are done for the day the loom goes away. Their coats fly in from the front of the thrust. They put, they take off their smocks. We realize because they're wearing these like long gray factory smocks, like it's very Fontaine and Lamy's, you know, where it's like covers their entire body. They yes. look like machines, and then they take it off. You see their long hair come down. You, you see them put on their colorful coats, and you realize like, oh, these are young girls who are work. It's like very Mary Fagan and you know parade. Like these are young women who are not even like peak, like they're right about to hit the peak of their energy and sexuality. And they're spending the majority of their days at a mill inside working under these smocks. And they pick up their boyfriends who are working at a shipyard and they go to the carnival. And that's where we get real color on stage. We get pinks and purples and blues and yellows. And the whole thing is happening on a turntable as it's moving. So rather than seeing the carnival in one giant long shot, we're getting it as sort of a slideshow, so we get the ticket booth comes on, and then we get, right. um, and then we, you uh, get one horse, and yeah, yeah. Well, and and so, so my professor in college when he talked about it because he saw this production twice because the first time he was just everyone who saw it for the first time was just so thrown by everything coming their way there because because the other thing is it's called carousel. You know that Billy has to put Julie on a carousel at some point. You know we're getting three minutes into a seven minute number and you're like i haven't seen the carousel yet like when do we first you're like when do we get to the carnival and then the carnival starts happening and it's in pieces you're like but wait like when do we get the carousel like i'm not seeing it and what you realize is that all the attractions that are on this turntable are at the front of the turntable and that slowly horses are being assembled on stage behind all the attractions and if you're not paying close enough attention you don't see it So he didn't see it the first time. He was too distracted by, like, the new kind of way they were telling the story. And then it wasn't until the final uh, attraction, the strongman, where they were getting punched in the stomach thing, and everybody goes away, that all of a sudden um, he realizes, oh, shit, now the whole turntable is covered in horses. He's like, oh, there's the carousel. And then Billy puts Julie on the horse in the most fucking hot way you can think of. It's like... My friend Allie Gordon, who's been on my podcast a lot, she has a really big issue with the whole love at first sight thing in movies and shows, even though even though fun fact, she kind of had that happen to her, the man she's now married to, when they met, it was a little bit love at first sight. And I'm like and I'm like, ha ha ha, jokes on you, bitch. But I said that to her at her wedding. I was like, look at you married, you know, love at first sight, and you hate it when shows do that. And she's like, I know, I know, I hate it. But what this show does, it's not necessarily love at first sight, although they do establish in the text that Julie has been to the carousel a bunch and has definitely kind of maybe tried to get Billy's attention in the past, but, you know, he's Billy Bigelow and girls always pay attention to him. And he's only maybe seen her once or twice. So it's not like they just met in that moment, but they connect for the first time in that moment. And you see Billy put Julie on the horse and it's not in like this grand romantic gesture kind of way. He's trying to get everyone on the horses so they can fucking start the thing. And he just absolutely grabs her, picks, swoops her up in his arms, drops her on the horse. And as he does so, they make eye contact. Their faces are like right up to each other. They have this moment of like, who the fuck are you? It's not love. It's just like, this it's this spark, and he comes back to her, and you're thinking, oh, okay, we have our carousel now. We've got these horses on a turntable, but no, 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 no. Then this giant pole comes down in the center, opens up like a fucking umbrella. You can't really see it as much in the bootleg, but a sign plops down. It, no, it, that says mullen's Carousel. I didn't care about the sign
0: when when the when the thing came out and opened up like an umbrella. I'm gonna
1: send you, I'm gonna send you a photo that shows you the sign as well. The umbrella is not fully open, but you get the gist of it. It's a, gorgeous image but yeah like that's all happening it's all connecting and that's when the audience just goes and we hit the carousel it's like they're like they they fucking did it they gave me what I was waiting for and it happens at the exact moment that the theme comes right back in with a full orchestra and the turntable's turning and everyone's bobbing up and down and while that's happening you know now now Billy's starting to stalk Julie on the carousel he keeps coming back to her horse you watch Michael Hayden come back and fucking straddle the head of the horse So his dick is in her face and it's so (laughs) fucking hot. And fucking Mrs. Mullen, who he's been, she's his boss. She's the one who owns the carousel and he's been banging her. She sees what's going on with them. And he has hooked up with girls in the past. He has flirted with girls in the past, but, but sometimes it takes an outside perspective to recognize when something has changed. To you. You know, like right. you don't know, want friends like you're different or like this person's different or like you're acting different around them and you don't recognize you're too in it. Billy and Julie obviously have the spark and there's something so intense about the connection that they don't recognize just how obvious they're being to everyone else. So, like Mrs. Mullins sees this, stops the carousel, dead in its tracks, fucking runs Julie and Carrie off the stage, banning them. And the whole thing is chaos and it's brilliant. And then at the back of this giant Vivian Bubba on stage, the The hill comes down, comes down, comes down, and then the backdrop and then we have the new picture and that's the whole carousel waltz.
0: What's interesting and I don't know if it's because it's um, a slime tutorial or if this is how they did it is that a lot of the set pieces like sneak up on you to mm-hmm. jump ahead to the end of Act 1 when they're going on to the clam bake. Like, yep. You see them on the dock and they roll out what look to me? I saw only two boats, but then all wow. of a sudden the turntable moves, and I'm like, "There's four boats and like seven
1: thousand people in each one." What? Yeah, I think that's <laughs> the angle of the video in that moment that you don't see the other two boats, but they also, yeah, no, you're right. A lot of the set pieces do sneak yeah,
0: in. Definitely. I mean, yeah. the
1: the dock that comes in happens during a soliloquy, and it does it doesn't announce itself. It's it not just itself magically really shows longer. up. <laughs> exactly. The way that this show was designed is incredible. It was this giant blue box where, because there also weren't um, panels like you you normally have on a stage behind the wings. The whole thing was just an insular box. So so things came on when the walls of the box would sort of slide open and they would just sort of sneak on stage. It was all about just sort of keeping it moving and nothing ever announcing itself. It's just so gorgeous. So. I love it so much. A question I have for you yes, uh, to
0: move things along a little bit. Sure. Uh, so June is busting out all over. Didn't know it was in the show, but I've heard of it because of Leslie Uggams, because, you know, the Weebers
1: and the Jeebers and the Juices and, and the Bleeders. Yes.
0: So is that song really about sex, or is that what this 1, production... No, okay. it's about
1: sex. They're literally, you just look at... I mean, it's 1945, first of all, and it's Oscar Hammerstein, who, you know, claims that larks can pray. But... If you look at poetry as he writes it and for 1945 Broadway audiences it a- it is absolutely about sex. The whole final thing is um all the rams that chase the ewe sheep are determined there'll be new sheep. How do new sheep get made, John? Right. By well, busting. well, busting. So yeah, exactly. I bust in all over <laughs> inside. And then there's this, um, there's another one, uh uh the bo- uh, boys are something with the girls and the girls ain't even putting up a fight, which is like not saying, which is not about like harassment, but rather like girls are not even pretending to have decorum because they want it just as bad as the boys.
0: Cause like, you know, like I said, all I know is the Leslie Uckhams of it all. And like, she doesn't even know the lyrics because it was thrown at her last minute. So. yeah,
1: And the, and the cue card guy fell.
0: Yeah. So like all of a sudden when, all the ensemble men in perfect unison take off their suspenders and rip their shirts off I was just like what is happening oh yeah
1: (laughs) yeah it's the song is about sex this production just like put everything at the forefront right well because then they they end up humping and I was just
0: like that that's what I was more so questioning is the choreography being like so is
1: this how it's usually done, or is this their interpretation of it? This is why I didn't want you to watch the Justin Peck production. Um, first of all, they, it does not end with them humping. I want I, let me let me be very, very clear this sh- this production is sex, but it is not vulgar. And I also want to say they're another, on top of each other. They're make, they're kissing. They're making out. They're making. Oh well, yeah. Also, I want to say, and I know I'm going on tangents, upon tangents, but I want to say another thing. There is a difference between a show being sexy. And a show being sex, this is sexy. This this is sex. Oh, this is sex because so sexy is giving off an impression of sex, but in a kind of coy and safe way. Like I would argue, Moulin Rouge is being sexy because it's not actually sex. Because actual sex, for anyone who is of the sexual nature and has had the intercourse in their lives, uh huh, can be very hot. It's also very vulnerable. It's very intimate. It can get weird and sometimes it can scare you a little bit. Like it's not always perfect. It's not, it's not always a Victoria's secret ad, right? Yes. And the show there are not a lot of musicals that actually really embrace that element of sex. Like one of the shows that I've talked about on my podcast that does is the Michael John Lacuse Wild Party as opposed to the Andrew Lipa Wild party that I feel is much more about being sexy with bowler hats and eyeliner. and I mean like, Ooh, fossy arms. I'm like, no, no, no. The is like, no, no, no. I am going to fuck you. And it's going to scare you because you've never felt that kind of sensation before. And then shows like Moulin Rouge or, and Juliet are sort of like, mm, mm, mm. look at my boobs. Mm, mm, mm. Look at my, <laughs> but don't touch. And don't ever think about me being sexual. Really? It's just the impression of sex. And Carousel, especially in this production, is sex. Because it's also not always perfect. And it's very raw. So with Junas busting out all over, it is a bit of a mating ritual through dance. It's coy, it's flirtatious, and then it just becomes combustible energy. They start start polka-ing, they start swinging each other around, the men take their shirts off, and then when it gets to the final push, they all just start jumping up and down. They start stomping the ground. So like in musical theater when you no longer can speak, you have to sing. And when you can't sing anymore, you just have to dance. And it's like, well, what do you do when you can't dance anymore? Like, you fucking just stomp the crown. Like, God, <laughs> fucking, like I, I don't know. I'm horny and I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and then they just collapse. And then they just fucking collapse. And then they go into the final verse. Uh, and which I think is just incredible, potent storytelling. The most recent revival, it's just pretty, pretty dancing all the time. And, I, and also these are working class people so they're not going to dance like they're in an SAB class. If it's going right. to be ballet, it's got to be ballet through these characters. So you're doing ballet vocabulary through working class characters. Justin Peck is like, oh no no no, they're all in center stage. So okay,
0: I was I was I did do a little research on this production, Matt. Yes, sir. I, I will hold for shock and and awe. I did read though that like they did use like. The original choreography from? No, not. I was very confused because they were like, there, "There's like five thousand like different choreographers attached
1: to this." Well, so do you know who the original choreographer was of um, the original production of Carousel in the forties? Uh, uh, Agnes de Yes, ma'am. They did not use her choreography. You can actually watch some of her choreography on YouTube. It's but it's fine it's- for what it is. I'm looking at the IBDB of it and it says... I'll I'm I'm explain, to you. I'm okay, explain okay, to you. Okay, 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 I, okay. Because I, I, I was just wondering if there's any. I'm going a, I'm to a hold your hand, love. I'm going okay. to tell you. Don't you worry. I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. <laughs> this production was originally choreographed by Sir Kenneth McMillan, who was, I believe, at that point in time, the artistic director for the Royal Ballet in, sure. in England, formerly the Souther Wells. That might be incorrect, but I know he did choreograph for them. He was one of the most world-renowned ballet choreographers at the time. His most famous ballet is Romeo and Juliet, which he did with Margot Fontaine and Rudolph... Uh, sure. ABT at Lincoln Center does it all the time. It's a really good one.
0: It's oh, like considered yes.
1: It's like considered the gold standard Romeo and Juliet ballet. So he was hired to choreograph this, and he died while they were in rehearsal. Oh, shit. So at the time that they... At the time that he had died, he had choreographed the entire opening... He had choreographed about 90% of Juna's Bustin' all over. He had choreographed the Pas de Deux with Louise and the Fairground Boy, and about 80% of the rest of the ballet. So, like, a good chunk of the show was already choreographed. The the vast majority. Like, they... they the percentage varies, obviously, but they say around 85% of the show was choreographed by the time he had died. And he had had notes set out for what he wanted to do. And he also had an associate who he was working very closely with on this who bas- who did her best to carry out what he was trying to do with the other 15%. So she was in charge of uh Blow High Blow Low, which originally was a little more choreography based when it was in London and then they reduced it for Broadway and just made it stomping because with those sailors they all were like these are not characters who dance these are violent Men. These are men who rob and kill and have raped and will do so again. These are not men who do grand jetés, which is another thing about the most recent revival I hated. Was Justin Peck is like, oh yes, these rapists and murderers are all going to dance like a bunch of power bottoms doing a hasty pudding show, and I fucking detested it. And you can watch that. You can watch that choreography on the Tony Awards because that's where they do blow high let blow low, and it is one of the most offensively choreographed numbers I've ever seen because it has nothing to do with story, it has nothing to do with character. I hate. All of it. Okay. Moving on. Um, so they they just reduced it down to kind of stomping in this tiny little saloon, and then made it about Jigger trying to get rid of his shitmate so he and Billy could talk alone. So that's they get that's the edge they give. Blow high, blow low, which is why that number ends with sort of the fight and everybody getting kicked out. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 That's So they begin the number, and then he's trying... And then Billy's about to leave. He's like, no, no, I got a proposition for you. And he's like, don't worry. I'm going to get rid of my ship, shipmates. So the 80% of the rest of that number is him sort of corralling everybody, getting them to stop, getting them sort of angry and energetic. And then he starts... And then in the crowded saloon, he masterminds a giant fight with everybody so every, so no one knows who's fighting who it's just about getting the aggression out thank and you for he, answering that question too because yeah. i
0: was just like why are we fighting now
1: i know yeah, we're men and we need to well yeah no it's it is it is toxic masculinity for sure but also so they are they are all combustible loads of dynamite he just nonchalantly strikes a match and no one sees got it uh, and because no one knows who strikes the, who struck the match, they're all just fighting with each other. And so he's able to get them all out so he can talk with Billy alone. That's what that's what that is. And it's hard to see that initially because of the angle of that of the right. video at that moment. But if you watch it again knowing that, you're like, oh, I see it. Anyway, so that was something that they kind of had to figure out without Kenneth McMillan. And then the very beginning of the Act Two Ballet, Louise's solo they kind of had to construct without Kenneth McMillan. They had to look at his notes of what he wanted to do. And then they worked with the original uh, dancer on how to make it work, which you don't... So you don't actually see the very beginning of the ballet in this video, but I can send you a link to it because this production also was co-produced by Cameron McIntosh, uh, awful, pompous asshole, Cameron McIntosh, because it was an expensive production to do at the National. He gave them like a half a million dollar grant so they could do it in the... Uh, lavishness that they wanted. And he also then owned any rights for transferring. So he negotiated with Lincoln oh, Center to do it. No. But there is a concert honoring him Ugh. in the late 90s called Hey, Mr. Producer. Unfortunately, it's about Cameron McIntosh. Luckily, it's one of the best musical theater concerts of all time. They do the entire potato de from Carousel and they start with Louise's solo. So I'm going to send you the link so you can see what Louise's solo looks like. Okay, great. So is it like a mashup of
0: Kenneth's notes with Agnes de original choreography?
1: No, there's from what I can tell, there's absolutely no Agnes de in this production whatsoever. She, if she's credited in any way, it might just be be because she did the original production in the same way that like when you do certain shows that Hal Prince originally directed, it's like original production directed by Hal Prince. Even if yeah, because
0: it. It, it just says. Uh, dances for the original theater guild production by Agnes de and I was just I was watching it, and I wasn't sure if this is kind of like West Side or like a chorus line where there are certain dances, certain like chore- certain choreography that like
1: people expect to see. Well, that's because of the estate. Um, West Side Story and Chorus Line, uh, most productions cannot do choreography that's not the original. Most professional productions can't because. Right, the Michael Bennett and Jerome Robbins estate won't let you. But, but that, but that's where I was a little confused. Yeah. I was just
0: like, "Oh, this is like great choreography." I wonder what is original and what is. So it's all original then.
1: It's all it's it's all Kenneth McMillan and, and his associate. There's no Agnes de She's in because the, she, the credit, as you said, it was original choreography for the Theater Guild production by Agnes de yeah. Theater Guild was the original 1945 production. Okay. Um, yes. not, not, yeah, not the National. So they're they are just they are crediting the Person who did it 50 years prior and saying, like, hey, 50 years ago, Agnes DeMille did this. Here's our choreography. Uh, this is going to be a super long episode, but uh... I don't fucking care, John. This is my time. <laughs> um, so, I-, I give me other things you would like to talk about, and I can say whatever because I could honestly, I have dissected this production and this show so much. And if you, I think we can talk about the Billy Bigelow of it all towards the end because there's a lot of stuff in this show that people do not get usually through other productions giving bad acting and i think it's very clear in this production how it all works but we can get to that so other things about this production you would like to talk about
0: well so um it's not necessarily about this production but um this is something stupid so all roads leave to riverdale on this podcast right i so- didn't realize you'll never walk alone was from carousel and it's I didn't in. know they sang
1: "You'll Never Walk Alone" on Riverdale.
0: At Midge's funeral in season two, after the Carrie episode, Cheryl Blossom sings it. You're welcome,
1: everyone. You uh, just said a lot of words I've never heard put together before. I don't know what any of that means.
0: To those of you that are the cross section of like musical theater and Riverdale fans, you know what I'm talking about. When you first hear it, it feels like it's a it's a
1: hymn. It is. Uh, the way it's described is, and I know the audio is not always great, but net, when. Nettie says to Julie, Nettie, Thank you. Yeah, Nettie says to Julie, Billy has died. He has killed himself in a botched robbery because he would rather be dead and go to jail and bring shame to Julie and their baby, even though he's he does bring shame to them in his anyway. death. Yeah. Yeah, he ends up doing it anyway. Um, which is, which is again, gives you some insight into just sort of how much of a man-child Billy is. That he can't even think of bigger pictures in any way. He always just acts impulsively. But but that's what happens with people who are drowning emotionally. But so, Julie's sort of sitting over his dead body and she has this heartbreaking speech to him. Which ends in her saying, I, uh, something I never told you. I was always afraid you laugh at me. I love you. I was always ashamed to say it out loud, but I love you. In that, that speech, she talks about how she understood why he hit her that one day which is the other thing about the show that people are like he hits her all the time like he hits her once which doesn't make it better but it's it what it does is that it shows you that he's not calculatingly violent to her or uh controlling her he is, if anything, she is the one who is in control of their relationship. He is just so combustible and does not think, and he's hurting so badly. And because of culture, because of toxic masculinity, he refuses to ask for help. I'm already getting to the Billy Bigelow at all, which I apologize. No, no, of... no. The, and this is good. We can yeah. segue into but, yeah, it. Exactly. But so when he, the day that he hits her, and the show makes it very clear that it's wrong. Like we have multiple characters telling both of them, leave each other. This is be-. like, when violence comes in, clearly something's wrong and they won't do it. And the fact that he does, that it ends in his death tells you that the show is like, yeah, no, this was never going to end well for either of them. But there was a reason why they did stay. You don't have to agree with it. We probably don't agree with it, but there is a reason and it's not totally toxic. There is a there is some pure love in there. Anyway, point is, she says to him, I know why you hit me. You were very angry and very sad. You were very troubled. You were a really bad boy, But you're. but it's over now. So just sleep. And she goes, I always knew everything you were thinking, but you never knew what I was thinking. So let me tell you something that I always was ashamed to say out loud. I love you. And then she starts crying and she says, what am I going to do? Because she's pregnant. She She's pregnant with their baby and she has no prospects. They're, they are living with her cousin, Nettie, who owns her own business. Billy was super unemployed. So it was just like this really awful situation. And this is 1890s? 1880s, mm, 1890s. Yeah.
0: Mm, uh, Maine. That they That's I know because I, I I read about like when they when Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote this they obviously changed the setting of Lilium.
1: Yes, Lilium uh, takes place right after World War One, I, I believe, in Budapest. No, it's way it's way before that because
0: Lilium uh, first premiered in 1909, and then that maybe when it
1: transferred over to when America, it Broadway. English. I think they set it in right after World War One because. Right. Because yeah. it,
0: it flopped in Hungary.
1: Yes. <laughs> it, so it, oh it oh boy did it. It was a um, flop. <laughs> yes, nobody liked it. Well, also, because the ending of Lilium is f- such a fucking bummer. And like not even in this sort of mag majestic way, in this sort of like beady bong kind of way. Right. Cause like he does he uh
0: he spoiler alert for the ending of Lilium, but he fails, he doesn't
1: save anyone and he goes to hell, presumably. Yeah. And oh, oh Lilium Well, yeah, we'll get into it in a second when we get into the Billy Bigelow of it all. But so Nettie says to her, like, you're when Julie's like, what am I going to do? And Nettie's like, do you have to keep going? You have a baby on the way. Like, you you have no choice. You have to keep going. And then she says, think about that um, poem uh, you. Uh, you like wrote out to me or whatever, because and it's you can't see it in the bootleg, unfortunately. But in the kitchen of Nettie's parlor, there is a cross stitching of the lyrics of "You'll Never Walk Alone." Oh, that's so cool! Yeah, because Julie says, "Yeah, the words of that of that song. We used to sing it in school every day," and she says, "Okay, sing it now," and. Uh, she Julie can't get the words out. She's too devastated. So Nettie sings it, and it's "You'll Never Walk Alone." So yeah, it's it's like a poem that everyone in the in the community knows. And then at the at Louise's graduation, the uh, the doctor who's the speaker, he's like, "It reminds me of that song we used to sing in school. Do you guys sing it? Do you know the words?" And he begins it, and then they all know the words. I wrote down though, like uh,
0: Billy dies and there's thirty plus minutes left, and because I this is new to me, I didn't know anything usually because I'm so used to like west side story where the death happens at the end or like or other plays and musicals it ends in the death the death ends in the death
1: king and i it ends with the king's death you're like yeah here we go
0: and like i did know about the quote-unquote dream ballet that you hate calling it that but that's what everyone calls it anyway calling
1: it that i just don't think it's accurate
0: so i i was just like okay so did i miss the dream (laughs) but no i didn't i just had to keep watching um yeah oh girl is there more there's so much more. Did you call this a cautionary tale? Did we call this one a cautionary tale? Can we call this a cautionary
1: tale? Heitner called it a fable. I think it's not necessarily a cautionary tale because in order for it to be that, it has to the show would have to end completely in tragedy. Like Lilium is a cautionary tale. Okay. I think Carousel is almost becomes a cautionary tale and then becomes a hopeful tale. Because it he it does end up getting saved at the last minute, but in a very very bittersweet kind of way. Mm-hmm. So the way that so for anyone who doesn't know the plot of Carousel, um, we Billy don't into,
0: we, do, we don't have to get into no. It. But I just want to get to the end of it. I'm gonna get okay to, yeah.
1: The characters Billy and Julie, you know, married. It's all bad because Billy's unemployed and he doesn't know how to find work because his only skill is being a carnival barker, which is like how fucking sad is that? And he can't provide. For his wife, he can't provide for himself. He's like, and it's not as if the economy is bad. This is not the 20s or present day. Like Carrie says, Mister Snow says, any man who can't find work these days is lazy. And Julie's like, well, he doesn't know any trade. What is he supposed to do? And they're staying with her female cousin who has her own business. So he's just like utterly depleted, and he's uh, hanging out with like the worst kind of guys. So he, in order, when he finds out that Julie is pregnant, he almost goes back to the carousel, but he doesn't. And he decides, I got to get money fast if I'm going to be a father for this for this kid. And he decides to be a part of a really bad idea which is this robbery that was not completely thought through and they there's also to show you just like how much of a child he is as well before the robbery even happens he's waiting on the dock with Jigger and they start playing cards and they have no money so Jigger's like well we'll just bet our stake in the in the robbery money and Billy keeps losing his shares so, like, not only is he going to still have to go through with this robbery, like, he's now walking away with, like, 10% of what he was originally going to walk away with, if there was ever money at all. But he they get caught, Jigger runs away, and Billy's going to go to jail, and he refuses to, so he kills himself. And right before he dies, he gets a moment with Julie, says, tell the baby, you know, I had plans for us to move to San Francisco, I, and then he dies. And you think, okay, maybe that's the end. But no, Lauren Ward... Uh, soon to be Violet and Violet and Miss Honey and Matilda shows up in Amish attire and she's like, get the fuck up. And he's like, what? And she's like, you're dead. Get the fuck up. And question real quick before we get into,
0: get more into it. Why were they in Amish attire? Is that for this production
1: or is that? Well, they're more Quaker. It's not really Amish, it's Quaker. But like, yeah, why were they dressed like this time period of like sort of what probably in Maine of that era, like the dominant religion was probably going to be that. Okay, Uh, I didn't know if that was like
0: explained
1: in the script or if it's just this production The way that that Heaven or sort of the backyard of Heaven was done in the original production how it's eventually done in the movie, I hate it, is it's a lot more friendly and like Lassie-esque like Oh Billy, you're dead. Welcome to the backyard of Heaven. And everyone's like in suits and the Heavenly Friend is usually a man. And in this production, Heitner's like, okay, the Starkeeper's still going to be a man. I want the heavenly friend to be a woman. I want a woman to be the one to like confront Billy and be like, you killed yourself. You did this. Why do you always hit someone you love? And he's like, and I'm not going to have them be friendly. Like this is their business is the afterlife and making sure that people who actually are, have done well and not hurt people on earth get into heaven. This guy hasn't, he has an opportunity still. So like, we're good. I feel like offstage, the starkeeper tells the heavenly friend, like he actually has a shot. We have to give him the shot. And she's like fucking pissed that she's got to do this. She's like this goddamn man who hit his wife you. and killed himself, leaving her pregnant. And I have to give him a chance. Like she, the way Lauren Ward plays it, she is not having it. She's like, get the fuck up. Get up. <laughs> it's great. I love it so much. When they tell him he has a chance, they're not saying like, we believe in you. They're like, no, just like li- logically speaking, you have more time. Your daughter, do- your wife is still alive. Your daughter's growing up and she's hurting go back to earth and and help your daughter cuz she's going through the same problems you you went through. She's lost, she's confused, she can't express herself, she's got all this rage in her. Everyone in town t- has told her what a bum you were. She's the, the outcast of her class, she's white trash like you and your wife were. Help her. And otherwise you're you are banished to eternal damnation. Which and I I wish that the bootleg could include this. The, unf- unfortunately the video cut out. But there's a moment when Billy's being confronted in the backyard of heaven. Like, why did you hit Julie? All this shit. And they're like, "Are you sorry?" He's like, "I'm not sorry for anything." He's like, starting to retaliate, and those little children with the Bibles. Yeah. They grab him, push him to the ground, and a trap door flies open, and you see red light and smoke coming out of the floor. And Billy, for a second, sees what hell looks like. Oh, that's so and cool! Then it, and then the trap door shuts, and the Starkeeper says, "Let me be very clear. You're in deep trouble. Like you don't <laughs> have a lot of. He's like you don't have a lot of options." So you gotta fix this. So it's either fix it or you're going. Or there. you're going to hell. Yeah, you go into the bad place. And you, and you and you only get one shot. He's like, li- life moves very quickly up here. It's already been sixteen years on Earth. You like, and which is another uh, important thing because in Lilium, when he's in the afterlife, what happens is he has to go to like basically the fiery pits of purgatory. He's like consumed by lava for sixteen years while his baby grows up. And so when his daughter becomes sixteen, he's spent sixteen years repenting. And has to go out and try to do good. And he still can't. Billy in his mind has only had 15 minutes since his death. So he's like fucking reeling. He hasn't had a lot of time to process and try to do better. And so he grabs a star instinctively grabs a star that he's going to give to his daughter. He doesn't know why he's, just, he's thinking on his feet. He watches his daughter grow through this whole ballet of trauma where she's taunted by everyone else in town. She meets someone who actually she connects with. And she has this moment of really great joy and pleasure, but he abandons her in the end as well. And he can see her pain He tries to help her. He can't. He tries to give her this star. It doesn't work. And she won't take it. She doesn't believe him. She she finds him scary. And he starts to freak out because he's like, no, if you don't take this, I'm going to hell. Take it or else I'm going to hell. But he can't say that. And he slaps her because, like, in his mind, he's like, it's now or never. It's now or never. I don't want to go to hell. Please just take it. And that's his ultimate go-to, which the show through The Heavenly Friend is like, the fuck is wrong with you? That's what Lauren Ward says to him like shame on you why do you always hit someone you love what the fuck which should tell everyone again Carousel is not condoning domestic violence if they did that line wouldn't be in there but it is in there and Julie runs out when she hears when Louise goes in to tell her someone hit me she runs out like fucking mama bear she's like who the fuck is this dude <laughs> <laughs> to for like 0. .5 seconds before he disappears and Louise says and we, we talked about this as well in, in the past I know we did Louise is like he hit me. I heard it, but I didn't feel the sound of it. That's crazy, right? And everyone's like, ah, oh, they're saying it didn't hurt because he loved her. I'm like, no, it's that's straight out of Lilia as well. She's saying it didn't hurt because he's translucent. He's, he's a not, fucking ghost. He's a it, ghost. Course, yeah. It, yeah, he's a ghost. That's it's bad poetry. It's the kind of poetry you write in middle school on your arm. It's bad. But but the but it's them trying to work around the fact of like when wouldn't, wouldn't hurt if he's a ghost. And when Julie says, "I believe you," and she says, "Well, is it possible for someone to hit you?" Julie says it is possible. She hugs her daughter and says it's possible. In the 50s movie, it's very, like, I I think they even, like, press their cheeks against each other and, like, look into the distance. Like, it's possible not to have it hurt. And <laughs> Heitner has Michael Hayden as Billy in, in, interject a little, like, no when he hears this. Because it's important for Billy to see the damage he's done to Julie by watching her say these words. Because it's not that the show believes that if someone loves you and they hit you, it doesn't hurt. What Julie is saying is when you understand why someone is in such pain, yeah, they can't hurt you as hard because you know where it's coming from, as opposed to when people hurt you just out of hate or senseless violence. When someone you care about is hurting and they retaliate with hurt, it doesn't hurt as bad. That is true to an extent but it's also important for Billy to see just how damaged he has left Julie. She, You watch Sally Murphy in that production. She's no longer a young girl. 16 years have passed. She's gone from like 20 to 36, which is not old. And yet she looks kind of matronly. She's weathered. She's tired. She's sad. She's a little depleted. And she loves her daughter, but she's not particularly warm to her daughter. And so Billy realizes that the person he really has to heal is Julie, not, not Louise, his daughter. And he sings that, how if i love you reprise you'll never know how i loved you and that devastates me and julie sees the star that he left for louise and she takes it and he realizes that she'll always know that he's there but she'll never know that he loved her and he's got like five minutes left he's like i gotta do something i gotta i gotta fix this and he's no longer thinking how do i save my soul he's thinking how do i help the two people i've left behind who are hurting and it's only he only has a couple of minutes. But through just sheer willpower and being from the great beyond, sometimes you have a little bit of magic and you can kind of mind control people. <laughs> when the doctor at Louise's graduation is like, you can't define yourself by your parents' success or their failures. That's then you have to go and do you. He's like, listen to him. He's like, pick your head up and fucking listen to this guy and actually believe what he's saying. And she does through the sheer power of, you know being from the great beyond musical theater <laughs> yeah, but, but i think we buy it right because like if a ghost is using the last of their ghost powers to tell you that you have to believe the words that someone is saying like if we can believe the po- a podcast from a from a stranger we've never met before like on a random tuesday who's to say we can't believe beautiful words from a trusted doctor well especially but like, if, the, if a ghost is forcing us to do so
0: but like i'm a lot of, uh, I mean, everyone has seen a version of A Christmas Carol. Yeah. So, e- ghosts are telling you to change your life, so obviously this is, and Christmas Carol predates the original production of Carousel, so like everyone yeah. is just like, okay, cool, we listen to ghosts now.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, listen, if, if, a, if I were to meet a ghost, yes. and they were like, you gotta do this because I've seen things and I know things you won't know until you're dead, and I'm telling you now to help you, I'm like, absolutely. Yeah, no, 1,000%. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um,
1: The thing is, like, Louise doesn't know that's what's happening, right? Like, he's invisible. He's whispering in her ear and he's, like, imploring her to believe the optimistic words of this doctor. And she does. And there's a beautiful bit of staging where as they're singing You'll Never Walk Alone, the girls in her class all start holding hands and one offers their hand to her and she takes it. And it's her way of accepting connections from other people and accepting love and help and support from someone else. Cause just because she's hurting doesn't mean she has to hurt alone.
0: But it it, it also seems like in this time she has the reputation of being Billy's daughter. Billy daughter. Yeah. Yeah. So like there's that whole stigma and everything, but like, it also seems like the person who's sitting next to her nameless girl at graduation number seven, yeah. like um, <laughs> she's just like you know, I see you. You're a person. Yeah. We're all we're all graduating, so like, why not?
1: Grow, yeah, they, uh, grow up. They heard the words too, and you can offer someone a helping hand, but they have to be willing to take it. So it comes from both sides, right? Like you have to you have to offer forgiveness to those who are in great need of it. We give grace to those who need it, right? Yeah. And it is definitely this girl recognizing the grace that Louise needs, and grace uh, and Louise seeing that. And accepting it. And then the other beautiful moment. So that's, that's one part of the circle complete, right? And then this other great bit of staging. Everyone's getting up and hugging, congratulating each other. And Julie just sits there alone. And Billy has one, he's got 10 seconds left. And he's like, how do I let the woman I loved move on now? How can I let her be, get get closure from everything? Because Julie never got closure. She Billy died with her, never truly fully knowing how he felt. And never really getting a chance to say goodbye. And he says to her, I loved you and know that I loved you. And that pushes her out of her chair, sees her daughter, hugs her daughter, and she can now move on with her life. And Billy has now allowed the toxicity that he left on Earth to die. The two people he left behind can now have better lives. It will be without him, but they will be able to heal. And that is ultimately what gets him into heaven because he has done good and it wasn't out of his own well being. Right. It's fucking beautiful. And it tells you that people can be redeemed if we give them the chance and they are willing to let themselves become better. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that is, and it's not something that everyone loves to hear because we as a society love to define people by the worst things they've done. And some things are truly unforgivable, you know, pedophilia. Unforgivable. Being a Republican, pretty unforgivable. But a Republican these days, and but you also have to recognize when people act out of malice and ill intent, and when people are acting out of pain, and 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 out of confusion, and and fuck up. Because it seems
0: like every time Billy hits somebody, it's twice in the show. But it's just it it's it's like the reverse of what musical theater is, where like you you mentioned. You mentioned and it's been said millions of times like in theater in musical theater when you have so much emotion you sing if you have more emotions that you can't that singing is not just enough you dance and everything so for billy though he has all these emotions and the only way for him to express it is to lash out on somebody but like he only does it twice that we know of and it's at heightened moments of like all the all of the toxicity is try- that he reached and the only thing, this is how I'm reading it.
1: I could be no, no, wrong. No, 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 you're, no, you're, I'm, tr- I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm listening, and I'm ha- the wheels are turning in my head right now as you're talking. John, are you? Have you watched Grey's Anatomy? You familiar parts of it? Okay, for any listeners who are familiar with Grey's Anatomy, and forgive me, I have only watched the first nine seasons, and I'm currently re-watching the first two at the moment. In a weird way, Billy is a bit george o'malley in the body of alex karev he is lost he is a kicked puppy he is confused and he is drowning but he looks like someone who everyone is also attracted to right and he's got a magnetism about him like they talked about they were casting this revival they wanted someone to give a james dean kind of vibe right like a troubled beautiful boy they did not want a big hulky quarterback looking motherfucker because with muscles and with prominence of physicality then you start looking at someone as a wife beater and nick heitner said another thing was like he cast his julie in london first and then started pairing up with multiple billies and he's like i he's like i knew i would find the right billy when i would watch joanna riding read with someone and i would think about them possibly hitting her and not immediately hate him or like immediately want to kill him and when michael hayden came in he was like I didn't want to kill him immediately when I thought of it because I could see the pain on his face. I could see how much he was hurting. And that made me not like him, but understand him. And that is what you have to do with Billy is you have to understand where he's coming from. And also, by the way, m- people, stupid people, if we can watch Marlon Brando in Streetcar Named Desire hit his pregnant wife more than once. Multiple times. Have her come back to him after he has raped her her incont- incompetent sister, or not incompetent, uh, her like, uh, yeah, no doubt sister, and still call street ca- Streetcar Named Desire, you know, like a masterpiece that we can do all the time. Not not problematic. And I don't think Streetcar is problematic only because Tennessee Williams's whole point of that show is like straight people are fucked up and like and romance is toxic. But like all these actions happen in Streetcar and everyone's like, oh my God, Stan- Stanley Kowalski, Marlon Brando in that movie, so fucking hot. And I'm like, excuse you, excuse you. Yeah. Then let's let's lop in Billy Bigelow, who is similar but actually not nearly as bad, and does end up healing the people he harms in the end. Whereas Stanley don't do none of that. Stanley's like, I'm gonna continue being a lumbering rhinoceros because, like, when Billy's alive, he hits Julie once,
0: and then when he finds out that he's going to be a father, he's like, "Well, fuck,
1: I need to like change everything." Uh, yeah, for well, the so i also want everyone to he- know this but, again we john and i are not condoning domestic violence and we're not we're, saying not, we're-, no, and no, we're not, no. not saying it's just the one time but that's also not what carousel is doing either In Lilium, the character of Lilium is fully a wife beater. When we flash forward, we find out that, like, he's hit Julie, like, multiple nights. And the final lines are Julie saying to her daughter, as Lilium goes off to the fiery pits of hell, someone can hit you and hit you and hit you and hit you, and it doesn't hurt at all. And Oscar Hammerstein is like, no, it cannot be a repeated thing. It cannot be a calculated thing. It has to be something, it has to be accidental act of violence that happened in a moment of desperation and we ha- and it has to be off stage the first time we never see it the first time it's simply referred to and it's talked about by julie first mm-hmm. and she's confronted by carrie saying you should leave him and julie says i don't want to and then we are confronted with the reality of again when he hits louise on stage in act two and it's shocking and it's terrible and it's sort of one of the ultimate awful things you can do and we are like well how can he come back from this and it's like well he can't ever really be forgiven for that act, but he, all he can do is try to take the pain away from Louise and from Julie and give them the tools to heal. And healing does not mean that that, that, that hit goes away. Um, my, my new therapist, Colton, shout out, Colton, shout out, better help, talks about this. Like when you go through a trauma and when you go through the loss of someone you love or someone who has hurt you, it's sort of like surgery, going back to Grey's Anatomy as well. It gets removed and eventually the the spot heals, but there will become a scar, right? And right. it will make you tougher and it won't cripple you anymore, but it will be there as a reminder. And that is sort of all Billy can do is remove the lump and give them the medicine they need to heal it in the future. And they will never not have Billy be attached to them in that respect. He is the scar, but the scar is the exterior that toughens them and allows them to move forward. And- and walk not alone.
0: I think, Matt, we need to go on to sharp and flat at this point. Cause okay, otherwise you can talk for days. I just uh, want
1: say one last thing, one last thing, one last thing. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I've I have talked about this on my podcast as well. The end of If I Loved You and they're talking <laughs> about the blossoms and the wind and all this shit. Billy sings his if I Loved you and he ends it talking about how he would never get married even if a girl wanted him to and it's so fucking defeatist and then Julie says don't worry about it Billy and it's the first time she's referred to him by his first name and you can watch Michael Hayden, Sally Murphy in that scene even though it's a ch- shitty grainy boot, like you watch them sort of clock in there and she talks about the blossoms falling down by themselves and as the blossoms fall they kiss and it's this sort of bear hug right And you can't really see it in the bootleg. But we talked about how deep that Beaumont stage is, right? It's like a football field. And they're on this hill. And as the music ends in the ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba, the hill is slowly dragging to the back of the Beaumont stage as the lights are going out. And there is this spotlight on Billy and Julie as they fucking lock into each other, kissing for dear life. And the spotlight gets tighter and tighter and tighter until the final button as they are like now deep in the trenches of the Beaumont stage. And then the light goes out. That's That final moment is it a perfect example and metaphor symbol for that, for that relationship and why Julie stays with Billy until it all ends in just like a fucking combustion. My therapist also says, sometimes people don't tell you you've been handed a stick of dynamite until they strike the match and then it blows up in your face and go, what the fuck? The thing is that Julie is smart and she knows she's been handed dynamite, but she's decided to stick with the dynamite, which we don't have to agree with, but the reasoning why is We've seen Julie work in the mill. We've seen what her day-to-day is. She is a 20-year-old woman in America, circa 1880. What fucking rights does she have? You know, best case scenario, she could maybe be her cousin Nettie and, like, own her own business. But in terms of, you know, marrying for love, who does that? Carrie thinks she's marrying for love. She ends up marrying because Mr. Snow is going to be successful. And when you watch her in Act 2, when 16 years later, they're kind of miserable. So Julie does not have a lot of joy in her life. And we watch her with Billy and even though their love and their chemistry has a lot of razor blades in it there is still a joy that she has never gotten in her life before and she knows due to just the depressing reality of her life and of America and of sort of a woman in her position she'll never really get again and this is her one opportunity to get anything resembling like a super high to get an actual joy for her so she holds on to Billy because let go and there's nothing but darkness. Hold on to Michael Hayden even though that spotlight is small, even though that light is dim, even though you are deep in the trenches of the Beaumont stage. But let go of Michael Hayden and you fall out of the spotlight and you are in nothing but a pool of blackness. You don't. Ha- you may not make the same choice she did, but that is why she makes the choice. And it is poetry. Alright, sharp and flat. Great, let's do it. Sharp Flat
0: uh, so in this section, we're going to highlight some moments, whether or not we talked about it. I mean, I just had Matt go because <laughs> he has all these. Um, he he needed to express his emotions, but he didn't do it via song. So uh, if we liked it, it's sharp. And if we didn't like it, I thought it could change. It's flat. And my flat is is stupid. So, but like, like
1: worthy of it.
0: Um, so <laughs> why don't you
1: go first with your sharps? I mean, everything. But great. Uh, <laughs> Everything, um, if we're going to be more specific, the design, the staging, the opening number, uh, the acting pretty much across the board with maybe like one or two exceptions. Uh, Audra McDonald, Sally Julie Jordan, Michael Hayden as Billy Bigelow. Michael Hayden's sexuality as Billy Bigelow. Uh, the act two ballet, the boats, the the boats uh, at the end of act one and the, um, I'm trying to think of one other thing, uh, the, the goddamn carousel. Like I know you've said it with the with the
0: design, okay. but like it needs its own. Yeah, sharp of it yeah, all. Give me more of your sharps, baby. Basically, you said everything I I wrote down. I wrote down the carousel, Audra, the choreography, shout out to the ballet, and the fact that Louise doesn't have a backbone.
1: Um, and the sentence. right that spine is gone. Also, I don't you love that jump she does into the fair ground boys arms when they when she and then she's the in movies. half yes yep. it's not better uh, yeah
0: bum, bum. So, and yeah. then like i know you said the design i really like the set design the costumes weren't the great like they were costumes they were fine it wasn't well, like they, oh spectacular they don't draw
1: attention to themselves They're, there's no no one
0: in the show and is that hi-hatic. is and that is the point so yeah. like they did I mean, a great job with the period but like the set design really is what yeah
1: it's what it's about. I will say, I don't think you'll realize just how good those costumes are until you do watch a little bit of the 2017 revival and see just how bad those costumes are. Got it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. They made they made Joshua Henry look 30 pounds heavier because of bulky sweaters and oh, and high waisted pants.
0: Oh.
1: They made Michael Hayden look like sex on a stick. Granted, not that difficult. The man is sex on a stick, but they they did not uh, undercut any of that.
0: I'm I'm glad Schmigadoon went with this version than the revival version of Billy Bigelow. It felt like okay. I still have not watched Schmigadoon. Aaron Tveit plays a Billy Bigelow type. I have heard. Well, well he is the Billy Bigelow. So they, but like they went with this look and feeling after okay. you've broken broken it down for me. Um, yeah. Okay, so do you have any flats?
1: Um. <sighs> I would say my only real flat is I've now gotten used to the dancer who plays Louise's acting, but I do think it's not totally the best. She gets the job done. You know, she's a hysterical 16-year-old who's going through a major depression. So she, it's not like, it's not bad acting. You're not watching going like, Jesus Christ, who the fuck are you? But it is definitely not Audra, Sally, Michael level. Right. Which is unfair to her. She was in, uh... Because we had two hours of them yeah, have, at and she's a New York C- She's a New York City ballet dancer. She's not an actress. And and like Audra's Juilliard train, Michael's Juilliard train, Sally's from Steppenwolf. Like those are people who are like, I can act circles around Jesus. And, you know, Sandra Brown is wonderful for what she does. But it's, you know, if they are like 10 out of 10s in acting, she's like a 7.5. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yeah, there you go. My flat
0: has nothing really to do with the production. It's more so I'm flatting the fact that there is no like filmed version of this production.
1: 1000%.
0: Cause like, I wish that they had the forethought to be like, you know what? Let's sell
1: this. Let's, let's have this on PBS or something. This needs to be preserved. Yeah. Um, And and it's a shame. And again, I cannot stress enough just how revolutionary this revival was in terms of its casting, in terms of how it approached the text. Like the the just the very fact of how they do the opening, which no one had ever done before, of like, oh, what if we rethought how to stage something? Like we maybe we set it and like even like blow high, blow low never took place in a saloon. I mean, it was the 1940s. And you can even watch this in the 2017 revival because they were like, or 2018 revival, cause they were like, let's do a throwback production like Hello, Dolly. I'm like, the difference between Hello, Dolly and Carousel is that Hello, Dolly doesn't have suicide in it or domestic violence. Okay? Hello, Dolly is noises off. Hello, Dolly is fluff. Yeah, Hello, Dolly is fluff. So you can treat it with candy color and nostalgia. Carousel is about actual people, so you have to treat it with acting forward first. But, like, so, you know, I talked about how If I Loved You scene, always, like, one big shot, and the Carousel Waltz used to be in, like, one big unit set june busting out all over till the end of act one originally was like again one big set it was the outside of N- Nettie's parlor and the pier so it all just sort of took place in different parts of the stage and in this revival they use the turntable to use the inside of set so for june busting out all over is outside when the children are asleep is inside i also oh i also want to sharp the muffin bit with um the ships and then when he's t- when Enoch is talking about having children and audra looks at those muffins and just starts slamming them back into the tin she's like nope we are not ha- do, do you not rem- see that i don't remember this i'm sorry so when enoch is talking about how he's going to get rich and he's like i'm going to have all these boats and he starts using the muffins that carrie has just taken out of the oven to represent the boats got it and yes you, can get, you can't get the details of audra's face but she is looking at him as, as he's doing that being like um i was going to eat those muffins and all and also like i don't need a visual component to understand what you're saying i'm not a total dum-dum enoch which shows you how like Like, while Billy is a powder keg, Enoch is a traditional gaslighting man. Like, he's not the worst, but he is... He is a mansplainer, and he also, like does not give his wife, uh, his soon-to-be-wife the benefit of the doubt when she's about to go get raped in the woods. He's like, oh, you fucking tart. It's like, no, bitch. She she was over a sailor's shoulders getting carried into the woods. What part of that makes you think she was in control of any of this situation? He's awful. Anyway, but when he's talking about, oh, and then we're going to have babies. We're going to have one kid, two kids, three kids. We're going to have a lot of kids. And as he's doing that, Audra just takes each muffin and just slams it back in the tin because she's like, oh, you can have 10 boats. We're not having 10 babies. But they end up having it anyway. They do, yeah. Well, again, shows you their dynamic. <laughs> she used to be young and vivacious and speak her mind, and then we flash forward 16 years. He gets everything that he wants. She gets domestic life, but she's miserable.
0: For this production alone, what uh, would you add any of the songs to your life's playlist? It's all on my life's playlist. Great. So this, this is the most played album on my <laughs> on my iTunes. For for me, I think specifically, like I do want to listen to it. If was there a cast album of this?
1: There sure was. It's unfortunately not on iTunes, but someone has made a playlist of the entire thing on YouTube and you can go right through it. Awesome. Um, But I think I would want to add When I Marry Mr.
0: Snow, June is busting out all over and you'll never walk alone. The only reason why I want to add When I Marry Mr. Snow is because it's Audra. Like, I don't think the song is
1: great by any means, but like, it's Audra singing, so. it's First of all, it's a gorgeous score. It's just a matter of like, I mean, lyrically, it's... Well, are you in the mood for, like, all the bops from Six? Are you in the mood for, like, carpool karaoke? Or, like, do you just want to listen to really gorgeous music? And that is definitely this. I will say, if you listen to this from start to finish and just, like, be like, I'm in the mind frame of getting knee-deep in Carousel, it is, I think it's pretty much, like, start to finish a home run. It's great music, I I will say. But, like, I I mean... But not everyone wants to get in the car, you know eat Starburst and watch Carousel (laughs) or listen to Carousel Uh, and listen to the uh, soliloquy. You're right. Yeah. Uh, But I love, I love Michael Hayden's soliloquy because the whole thing is a monologue set to music. Some people want the vocal performance. And I don't think he sounds bad. Like when people complained about his vocals, you would have thought we were talking about Beanie Feldstein here or like LaShawn's in color purple where she can't get the notes out. It's not that like he's on pitch and he sounds nice. It's just like, it's sort of a youthful tenor voice and it's a little thin, it's just not a booming baritone but he like i'm no one has really hit the emotions of that soliloquy to me like michael hayden everyone else just barrels through it vocally and doesn't actually connect to the words and the way he monologues it is incredible
0: well matt we somehow did it we somehow talked about carousel
1: (laughs) anyway matt what do you have to plug or promote my podcast, Broadway Breakdown, it's out and about. So the next episode will be the Golden Apple. And then after that, Hamilton, I only know that because I edited the Golden Apple and I'm in the middle of editing Hamilton. We'll be taking a short hiatus around New Year's and then coming back and continuing the big move series. And yeah, that's it for the moment. A couple of writing projects that are hush hush, but you might hear about come January. So, okay. Hopefully. Yeah. And you can follow me on Instagram at Matt Koplick, usual spelling.
0: And you and people will hear about all these secret projects through there? Uh yes. When yes. they can when they can be not or secret they can be anymore. Disgust. When they can be discussed. Um and if you wanna I, I don't know. Matt I let Matt be professor of carousel for this. So <clears throat> um if you wanna talk about carousel, you can email me at buttasagpad at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ButtersangPod. Um yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> if you have questions yeah. that you want to give me that are longer than an Instagram DM, you can email John and be like, "This is for Matt. Can you just like send this to Matt?"
0: Yes. 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 Um. And if you want to be part of the next episode's conversation, well, we're going to be talking about the 1986 version of Babes in Toyland.
1: Yes. Oh my God. With Barrymore. With ba- with
0: Drew Barrymore and Keanu Reeves. Baby. Yes. Baby. Matt, thank you for coming back on. I'm just. Uh, it's gonna be weird because like I wanted you to like express yourself and talk but like oh boy we went for a while
1: <laughs> yeah you're like oh yeah this I, is a, I, this I, is a I, long one and who cares so what who cares
0: so what top who cares that. top that anyway <laughs> uh thank you everyone and have a wonderful day bye, bye.